Well, welcome to another special episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings, from Marcus Today. And joining me today is Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Now, a lot of you will be very familiar with Julia. She's on television and she is an expert presenter and market commentator. She's been on Sky Business, AusBiz, CNBC, Bloomberg. She is a very well uh, skilled and very well-versed presenter and an excellent commentator, an expert commentator on the market as well. But not only that, Julia is also the CIO and the founder of her own fund, Berman Invest, which is a high-conviction, index-unaware Australian fund manager. And she's also on the board of the directors of the Australian Stockbrokers Foundation, which is a fantastic cause, which raises money for charities. So Julia is, uh, is, is a, great, um, a great advocate of that as well, I know, um, from my own experience. She also has a Master of Business in Finance and is an accredited derivatives advisor and, of course, is RG146 compliant. So welcome, Julia. Great to be here, Henry. Always good to chat to you. Oh, it's lovely to have you on the show. Just before we kick off, though, I have to do the, uh, the usual disclaimer thing and just say that this is uh, general advice only, so please do your own research. Contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or anything that we talk about on this podcast. Remember, it is general advice only. So, Julia, it's March. We've managed to get through the terrible February with the Super Thursdays and the results. How did it work out for you? Obviously, a very busy month with your own fund. How's things gone in, in, in February for you? Sure. Well, you know, Christmas comes around two times a year for us people who follow the markets, once in August for full-year reporting season and once in February for the half-year reporting season. I guess having a look at February, you come out of it sort of dazed and needing a bit of a holiday. And look, last reporting season in August, our fund had a great reporting season. I think for August, we were up almost 10% for the month, whereas the market was up almost 3%. This time around, I feel like we we had the right companies and we saw very strong results. Um, and most of our companies actually beat expectations. Um, but I think one of the things that stood out is that some of the stock prices just just didn't match what we saw back in August. So subdued or selling off into the result um, or after the result. So I think that was one of the things that we noticed. Um, so we have shifted our portfolios a little bit after February as well. Um, I guess we, we've gotten rid of a lot of those companies that did well during lockdown and COVID-19. And we've um, started to gain some more exposure to those um, companies that didn't do so well during COVID-19, those so-called recovery stocks. Uh, looking across our portfolio, our top three holdings in February were our Linus, Credit Corp, as well as BHP Billiton. So I guess those three companies did really well. I mean, having mm. a look at Linus and it's just on a tear today, again, it's up at a new 13-year uh, record high, I think it is. Um, that we are seeing. Actually, Linus is at an eight-year record high. So I think these are the highest prices that we've seen since 2013 for Linus. And the shares are up a huge 65% in the year to date. So that's only in 2021 so far. So that was my number one pick for 2021. And it's been doing really well. So great to see um, Linus shooting the lights out. And it did come out with a very strong report um, I think Linus will go strength to strength for a number of reasons. One, when we saw the last quarterly numbers come out, um, we were seeing the processing plant in Malaysia uh, only operating at about 75% capacity. 
because of mm. COVID-19 and the impacts. So as that gets back to 100% capacity, we'll see a lot more product coming out of that processing plant. And secondly, prices have been moving up. Um, now the valuation of Linus, I think has gotten a bit ahead of itself as these things do, but I think the longer term story is intact. So here um, looking at Linus, I am uh, tempted to take a little bit of money off the table and hopefully get back in at cheaper levels. Um, so I might do that with a portion, uh, maybe about a fifth of the holding in Linus, given the strength that we are seeing at the moment. It's been an incredible story, hasn't it? And uh, a lot of it has been based on, I guess, the strategic value of these medals, the uh, the new administration from Joe Biden and, and his view that they want to make the US far more self-sufficient in the strategic medals. And of course, Linus is pushed into the US as well. It was weird because I wrote an article back in uh, October last year when Linus was around $2.70 saying what a great buy they were because of this strategic thing. I, I had no concept that they would do this well uh, in this environment, but uh, it has been an extraordinarily big rise for them. So any other companies that stood out for you in, in the reporting season in terms of uh, just the results? Are there, are there any that really you thought, wow, that's that's an absolute knockout result and I should be long of these ones? So the other company we, we really liked in our portfolio was Credit Corp. Um, so that's our second largest holding. And the reason we like Credit Corp. Um, I, and I guess with reporting season, some of the things that we're trying to glean or try try to work out is whether the stock's in an upgrade cycle and the outlook is improving or whether the outlook is deteriorating. And with Credit Corp, we saw that outlook improving. Um, and a big story with Credit Corp has been that expansion over into the US. A lot of companies, mm. when they look to um, leave Australia or uh, pursue new markets, Often it's a complete disaster for them. But with Credit Corp, they've been doing extremely well, which is great to see. Um, so having a look at uh, distributed ledger companies like Credit Corp, it's already in the top five over in the US and it hasn't been in the US for that long. And I think what was really quite impressive were the margins they were seeing out of that US business. Um, so that's a relatively new business for Credit Corp and no doubt that they're at the start of that growth cycle, which make, makes this story, I think, quite compelling and exciting. Um, and you know, when you look at Credit Corp's core business, it's not the nicest of businesses. Basically, they're taking um, all these debts that people can't pay, and then you know, buying those debts, and then trying to call those people to pay those debts off or work out a payment plan. And if you have a look at this space, there are a lot of companies that don't do it very well. I mean, you only have to go to uh, review sites to work out that, you know, debt collectors aren't a, aren't a well-liked bunch and some of the tactics are, are pretty bad. But in, um, I guess, what's a pretty difficult area, I think Credit Corp does it really well. They, they work out these payment options and they work together um, with people and they get some great results. So unlike some of the others in this space, like Collection House, which haven't been doing well, Credit Corp has been doing well, and I think they've taken their model, which is working really well in Australia, and applied it to the US, and that's working really well as well. So, look, a confirmation of an upgrade cycle there. So, really happy to be holding those uh, Credit Corp shares that came out of um, reporting season. Is the big dividends, um, especially mm. out of the miners and the banks, I think were a, a big surprise. And um, we had Bendigo and Adelaide, which reported really well, and then the share price sold off quite aggressively after the result. 
And we've since sold Bendigo and Adelaide and we've actually um, put that money into Westpac. Right. Um, so a bit of a, a change in terms of, of the banking stocks there. And what we like about Westpac is um, the platform they have to offer um, banking as a service for uh, other fintechs. And I think Afterpay is going to be one of those companies that takes advantage of that platform to offer uh, banking services to their customer base. So look, that's probably a smart move for a very traditional bank um, and helps offset some of those structural challenges that come through from um, the fintech area and I guess the disruption that we are seeing in that financial services space. I guess going back to uh, to Credit Corp as well, they, they've been quite good in that they've um, one of their major rivals, I guess, is, is Collection House, and they, they've very much fallen by the wayside. And Credit Corp, have, I think, have bought part of their uh, debt ledger off them. Um, I think I saw somewhere there. So that obviously takes out the, one of their competitors has been taken out, and they've also stolen or at least paid for that business off them. So I guess there's a bit of a double whammy there for, for Credit Corp as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like um, what they are doing and how, how, um, how they're going, especially in terms of the US. And look, you know, when you are buying debt, it is all about the price you buy that debt with and then what you can do with that debt that you've bought. So if they are buying that debt at discounted prices, I think that's, that's a, a positive. And look, mm. it really was the US which was a standout. Um, the US debt buying was up by 33% in terms of revenue um, and in terms of uh, net profit that was up by more than a hundred percent in the US so I think the US story is the exciting part of credit Corp. just just a, a slight question without notice and I know you can handle these afterpay it was it was an interesting um, February I guess for afterpay in some respects it got to what nearly hundred and sixty dollars um, and here we are below, I think, $120 as we're re recording this podcast. And they've obviously had a, a, a big issue, um, quite, a, quite a complex uh, convertible note issue to expand their U.S. business. What's, what's your current thinking on Afterpay just as a, as a stock to own? I, I'm not sure whether you do own it or not, but just what's, what's your current thinking on that one? Sure. I guess with Afterpay, um, because it's had such strong returns over the past year, people start to expect that it will just go up in a straight line. And look, I think these pullbacks are, are quite healthy for Afterpay. I think behind the pullbacks are a number of factors. Um, first of all, we have seen long-term bond yields rising, and that's an issue for companies. I think that um, where the valuation is based on future cash flow, um, mm. and with Afterpay, it is all about the future cash flow and future profitability, because obviously um, profitability now is nothing <laughs> and so mm. you're banking on them making a profit in the future so as the long-term bond yields rise those future cash flows become less valuable now um, so anyone who's sort of studied valuations of companies knows that the value of a company is essentially those future cash flows discounted to today's price but as bond yields rise um, then those cash flows are discounted much more aggressively so essentially the valuation becomes less. So I think that was a big one, not only for Afterpay, but the tech sector as a whole, and we saw a lot of volatility of the NASDAQ. Secondly, I think this is an area which is growing very quickly, but you're seeing increasing competition coming through. And increased competition usually is bad news for the biggest in the space. If you think back to the telecommunications sector, and I always use this one as an example, where Telstra was a monopoly in Australia. 
and then the market got opened up. Um, so then Telstra, of course, lost market share as new players came into the market. So Telstra had the most to lose here. I think in afterpay scenario, it's a little bit different because the buy now, pay later space isn't a mature, saturated market like Telstra was in, in terms of the telecommunications sector here in Australia. But there is increased competition and that's leading to, I guess, some worries that it's going to cost more in order to grow our market share and, and grow the number of users. So there is some concerns around the cost now to grow, that it will be more expensive to grow in terms of afterpay. But thirdly, I, I guess more on a positive note, if you have a look at afterpay, they have been very successful in what they do. And generally, if I'm going to invest in an area that's growing rapidly, I prefer to invest with the leaders. So I'd prefer to go with Afterpay rather than a Zip or a Klarna or a Sezzle or something else like that. Um, and look, in terms of Afterpay, I think the exciting part becomes when they start to offer other products um, and basically become like a bank to millennials and offer banking products, things like home loans down the track. And I think that's where this partnership is with Westpac is very valuable um, because it is all about trying to get to a model which is profitable and also growing in profitability. So I think what Afterpay has done very well ha is cater for a generation and now it's about bringing more products to that generation. I, I have to say, and I, I probably am wrong here, but um, you know the attraction for me always in Afterpay is that it's a very simple, easy to understand model um, it's not all things to all men. And I seem to remember years ago that the banks, the big banks, this was, were always very keen to get into the um, the business of, of every product. They wanted to be the one-stop shop for a certain demographic. And, and the, over the last few years, they've completely unwound that kind of tactic. It just seems a little strange to me that Afterpay is, is now heading down that sort of uncool path, I guess, to offer all things to all men, even if those men and, and women are a millennial generation, men and women. Uh, whereas the banks had a stab at this such a long time ago with the, you know, the omni-finance kind of model that really didn't work out very well for them at all and they lost control of it. So I guess it would be interesting to see how it all works out for Afterpay. I mean, you only have to look at, at PayPal, you know, they started off as a payment option and then very quickly there was the FX component to the payments and now you're seeing the buy now, pay later space in terms of, of PayPal as well. So it is about mm. building out that ecosystem um, and look, I don't think they're going to lose their customers as, as a result. If anything, it's all about being more valuable to your customers and helping your customers. Um, and if they can be in that space where the traditional banks aren't reaching that audience effectively, I think I think it makes sense. We shall see, I guess. In terms, in terms of um, disappointments in the market, were there were any companies out there that you looked at the result and went, "Wow, that is a shocker." Uh, and I certainly there were some some big moves, some very big moves in some companies. Newix is one that sprang to mind uh, last week, which had an, an almighty catastrophe of a day. I think it was 38% down, um, which is quite a lot for a, a billion-dollar company. Any any that stood out for you as really disappointing? Yeah, I mean, Appen was the other one um, in that mm. technology space. So Newix and Appen were, were huge disappointments uh, coming through. Um, and I think it was interesting with Appen because we were watching this one. It's not one that we hold in the portfolio, but it's a stock that I've always really liked because 
It's a business model that is difficult to replicate. So looking at um, artificial intelligence, but also catering for those big tech giants like Facebook and the Googles of the world. And I guess that there, there's a fear that perhaps we're seeing a bit more in terms of competitive pressures here. I don't think the question's been answered for me whether we are seeing a substitution of Appen's products in the marketplace or whether it is just a COVID-19 induced impact. So that's one that I'm going to be watching over the next six to 12 mm. months, just to see if we are seeing a shift in terms of the marketplace and if we are seeing some of their products being substituted um, and some technological change coming through there for Appen. And Newix, um, very disappointing as well, especially given that they haven't been around in terms of the market very long. I mean, the other thing to note is that some companies came out with some great results, but um, actually the share price action hasn't been fantastic at all. Some of the ones that come to mind are some of those ones that did well during COVID-19. So, um, mm. I mean, Domino's, JB Hi-Fi both came out with great results, but the share price action has been very poor. And then you look at something like Coles as well, which also came out with a very strong result and then came out with a, a relatively soft outlook saying that, you know, when JobKeeper rolls off and things return back to normal, that they don't see the same type of growth coming through. And that's something everyone knew, um, most people knew, but the share price action, I mean, we've seen a significant um, fall in terms of coal share price since um, the result coming through. Um, and then I guess in addition to that, we've seen companies like Kogan, which have done very well during COVID-19, selling off quite aggressively. Um, and then um, A2 Milk, I think is an interesting one as well. I think a lot of people ask me about A2 Milk because I, I, I first got interested in A2 Milk when they listed in Australia. I try to buy the shares in New Zealand unsuccessfully and luckily not long after they listed in Australia. So I first bought my A2 milk shares for <laughs> 49 and a half cents, which was lovely to see. Um, I wow. sold them long ago, but I still get asked about A2 milk. And look, A2 milk has been impacted negatively because of the Daegu channel and the lack of travelers coming into Australia to sell back into China. But the bigger question for me for stocks like A2 Milk and even Baby Bunting, which is doing relatively well, is um, what's the birth rate? And that's a key mm. question for me. Um, and it, it's not something that I've managed to figure out because having a look at some of the numbers, some of the birth rates in regional hospitals are, are soaring, but other places, you know, are falling. And so I'm not quite sure whether that's just a reflection of people moving out of capital cities and having their babies elsewhere. So I'd be interested to know what the overall birth rate trend here in Australia and in China, I actually think that the birth rate is softer. So the last set of numbers that I saw, uh, birth rates were down by as much as 25%, which is pretty significant. Um, one of the main reasons why I entered into A2 Milk is that I thought that milk prices had bottomed out, one. And number two, China had gotten rid of the one-child policy, so I thought there might have been a baby boom. There wasn't a baby boom, but still A2 Milk did really well in terms of capturing that market and market share. And so it's been interesting, China. The reasons why I got into A2 Milk actually didn't eventuate. In fact, since China got rid of the one-child policy, birth rates have actually been falling. So. Nothing what I thought it would be like, but um, I think the biggest thing for me, if I was looking at an investment in A2 milk or even baby bunting right now, would be what is the birth rate like at the moment in China and in Australia. 
And to me, it, it's mostly a, a negative impact. So the China birth rate looks like it's coming under pressure. Interesting. It's, um, it is interesting. I guess it plays into the whole demographic shift that we've seen during COVID in Australia, at least with people shifting out from those capital cities, as you say, into regional areas, embracing the sea change or the tree change, mm-hmm. as it were. Where else are you seeing opportunities in this market? It's, it's almost a year. Uh, I think it was March the 23rd when the market bottomed due, due to the pandemic and the Tokyo Olympics were cancelled. Uh, it's almost a year. Where, where do you see the opportunities now? We're a year on. We're, we're back to where we were pretty much. Where do you see the opportunities for 2021? Sure. I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that's happening on our market is we're seeing a number of resource companies reaching all-time record highs, if not multi-year highs. And that's really exciting. So, you know, the biggest resource company on our market, BHP, Billiton is trading at record highs. So some investors might be thinking that they've missed the boat. And I do think that we are due for a bit of a pullback here. Um, but if you feel like you've missed the boat, one area that hasn't started booming as yet is the mining services. And you often look at it almost as a second derivative to a commodities boom. So it tends to be slower in getting started. And if you have a look at um, the mining services space, it was a pretty disappointing reporting season. Um, I like to look at trends and I really think that this trend is bottoming out. I think you're going to be seeing much more money going into mining services as a result of those high commodity prices and miners being cashed up. Um, So I'm quite positive in terms of mining services. We hold two mining services companies in the portfolio, Monodelphus, which came out with a great result, but the share price really hasn't been moving too much. But look, I think this is the bottom in terms of of Monodelphus, and we'll see a good year ahead. And the other one we like is NWH or NRW Holdings. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We we haven't seen um, that mining services sector pick up at all, have we really, considering the um, commodity prices we're seeing? Copper at nine, 10 year highs, and iron ore at 175. It's, um, Absolutely. You're right. it's, I mean, it's, you'd have to it's, think it's, if you're a mining company and you're seeing prices this high, you'd be trying to get more production um, coming through as quickly as possible. So I think uh, the next six to 12 months, very positive on the mining services space. Excellent. Well, that, that's where we should be looking. As far there's a lot of people at the moment talking about bubbles, various asset classes having bubbles. And of course, uh, in the US especially, we've seen some sh- shenanigans, I guess, in um, things like GameStop. And even last night, there was one in, in Rockets, which uh, has a good name and lots of rocket emojis, I'm sure, after it. And in social media to get the stock going. What, what do you make of all these bubbles at the moment? Or, or are there bubbles or maybe there aren't any bubbles? Well, to me, bubbles are just a normal part of the market. To me, it's just part of the behavior of investors. It's um, something that always happens. Um, there's, there's been many bubbles throughout history. Um, and it, it's a question for me about, um, I guess, emotion versus being quite rational about the market. And bubbles occur, I think, when um, prices move away from the fundamental value. And for me, bubbles usually happen around something that's new. Um, And investors tend to say, oh, this is a new era or this is something that's unusual. Um, So it has to be valued differently. So if you think back to the tech boom in 1999, 2000, where we were seeing the internet really changing how we did business and how we went about life you know there was this call that it should be valued differently because it's going to be game changing and the growth area is going to be big and then you saw the euphoria kick in Um, and it was simply the belief that things would go higher that drove the price um, rather than anything substantial 
So look, I think bubbles are, are a normal part of the market. Um, there's many stories about bubbles and there's been many bubbles that we've seen um, from the tulip mania or the roaring 20s. You saw the dot-com bubble where you know the Nasdaq went up 300% only to fall 78%. You saw the real estate bubble over in the US with the CDOs um, where things rose up 71% um, and then I think fell about half of that. So for me, bubbles are a normal part of the market. It's more a question of how you manage those bubbles and a question around whether you embrace the bubble or whether you just steer clear of the market. And I think the hard thing about bubbles is that you never know when they're going to pop. And if you're going to steer clear of the market, well, a bubble can be around for many, many years before it pops and offer the greatest returns of a decade for investors. So I think it's hard, it's a hard question and I think it's an individual question for investors because for me bubbles is a question of time frames. If you're willing to take a short duration in terms of the market and um, invest in short time frames, then you know keep on investing but cut your losses early. Um, but if you're a long-term investor then I think it becomes a lot more difficult to manage. And for me, bubbles is all about investors focusing in on shorter and shorter timeframes. Now, I'm going to have to ask you this because this is, to me, this is obviously the biggest bubble um, around at the moment is, is Bitcoin. <laughs> how, how do you feel about Bitcoin? I, obviously, um, it's maybe probably not something that your fund would invest in, unlike Elon Musk. But how, how do you feel about the rise of this alternate asset class in cryptocurrency? Sure. I mean, on the plus side is number one, the price is going up, which is what is, is driving a lot of people to put their money in um, Bitcoin. The reason why um, prices are going up is because demand is going up and demand is going up because prices are going. And to me, that's quite a dangerous <laughs> scenario. Um, so you have to ask yourself, well, you know, where does Bitcoin fit into the investment spectrum? Is it more like a currency or a counter to the U.S. currency, a lack of faith in the U.S. currency and fiat currencies? Um, is it a safe haven? And I'd argue that it probably isn't, given that um, there's extreme volatility. And I'd argue that it isn't a currency either because of the extreme volatility. So I don't think it's a great store of value if that's what you're looking for. So I think the main driver of Bitcoin at the moment is that prices are going higher and people expect the price to go higher until it doesn't anymore and it sort of starts to crumble down. Um, so at the moment, I think the positives are the price is going higher and demand is increasing. I think on the negative side, once you start to see the share price um, see weakness, you're going to see some demand going down. So <laughs> that would be a negative. <laughs> but also there's yep. the regulatory risk as well. I mean, if I was any central bank around the globe and I was looking at a competition for my currency, um, I probably wouldn't stand for it very long, especially an unregulated currency and an unregulated marketplace. If anything, we've seen governments trying to um, track a lot more of uh, the re their revenue and the money that comes in and how we spend that money um, rather than letting it go to the black market and into the void. So at some point, I think either we'll see a re regulatory crackdown, things like cryptocurrency, where they'll be brought into the fold, or otherwise we will see central banks issuing their own cryptocurrency or the equivalent of. And so look, I think it's an interesting mania. And look, it is something new. Um, so I am quite wary of things that are new. I much prefer things after they've seen a, a deep correction and a much normal more normal intake. I like the technology behind Bitcoin. It's just a question of whether that is going to be part of our payment system going forward. 
you know, people get excited because the big investment banks are getting involved in Bitcoin. But you know, anyone who's dealt with an investment bank, they'll get involved in anything that will make them money. So don't take that as a sign that it's a good investment. I knew you were going to say that, and it's so true. If it, if it's two flies creeping up a wall, they'll get involved in that and, and do some derivatives off the back of it. It's uh, it's so true. I was reading this article the other day in, in on Bloomberg about the amount of energy that is required to create bitcoins, and it is just through the roof. It's it's the equivalent energy production of the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean, energy is a big part of it, which is quite funny because a lot of the uptake is from new investors and millennials who are, are more environmentally mm. conscious. But I guess, you know, when it, it comes to money, it's it seems less dirty because you're not digging it out of the ground directly. But when it comes to usage, you know, mm. energy at the moment is still still needs to mm. be sourced from somewhere. It does, it does. And they would argue that it's more and more of it's coming from renewables, but uh, I'm not sure that's really the case at the moment. So 2021, we're, um, it's amazing how quickly time has flown. We're in March already. We've gone through February reporting season. How do you see the rest of the year panning out uh, for the market? It's going to be another big year, I guess, in terms of the pandemic. And So how do you see the rest of the year panning out for you? Sure. I think the number one risk for the markets is from the macro side um, in terms of bond yields. I know that we've seen the Reserve Bank intervening in terms of uh, the three-year bond yields to bring the rates back down um, and quantitative easing. But the bond market's the biggest market in the world. Um, once it starts moving, I don't think even central banks can get in front of it. Um, so the biggest risk, I think, is that we will see um, bond yields rising too quickly. And the reason I say too quickly is because I think that bond yields rising is actually a positive for the market. It indicates that um, people are confident in economic growth and that inflation is coming back. The issue is, I think, when we see that the speed of those bond yields rising and the velocity being too quick, um, then you see volatility in the markets. And I think what we saw at the end of February, beginning of March, is going to be something that we'll have to probably deal with all year. But secondly, looking from a fundamental point of view and just from an earnings perspective, you know, earnings expectations are being upgraded. Um, they're about double what they were about five months ago for this financial year. Um, so that type of environment, it's an upgrade cycle. It's a great back, back, backdrop for investors. So overall, I think the market will do very well. And then thirdly, from the technical point of view, you know, US markets are still near record highs. The Australian market's still pretty much near the, the post-COVID-19 high and probably going to regain the, uh, the, the pre-COVID-19 high as well. So look, I think it's a great backdrop, but I think the biggest risk really does come from the macro side this year. Excellent. Well, let, let's hope uh, central banks can keep that inflation beast and the bond yields under control. Julia, it's been an absolute delight as always to speak to you. And uh, as always, you're full of uh, expert knowledge and I really appreciate your opinions and views because you're always spot on the money. So really, thank you very much for your time today. Always uh, I'm sure love chatting listeners... to you, Henry. Hopefully we can meet in person soon. Well, I hope so as well. I hope so. It's always, it's always good fun. So, Julia, thanks very much for today. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, Henry.